Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And um, I'm so pleased to have Rachel Bovard back on High Noon. We had her on, if you recall, about a year ago with Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, where they talked about uh, imposing um, tyranny from tech companies. But of course, Rachel uh, deserves her own episode because she has been truly the, the canary in the coal mine on this. She has been writing and speaking about this for years um, to, to much detriment and, and scorn from um, not only <laughs> folks on the left, but folks on the right as well. And I, I think if anything has happened between the last time we spoke on High Noon, Rachel, and now it's that, you know, the fact that you are right about a lot of these things has become even more blatantly obvious, right? Um, going back and and a year ago, I think it was already pretty obvious, but uh, you have been writing, as I said, and speaking about this for at least half a decade at this point. Um, but for those who are not aware of Rachel's background, she worked for Rand Paul in the Senate. Um, so she actually comes out of the libertarian side of the Senate, Um but has been working especially on tech policy for quite some time. She is also policy director over at CPI, that's Conservative Partnership Institute, and the senior tech columnist at The Federalist. So again, and, and you can find her work at American Mind. She's a Claremont um, Lincoln fellow as well. So she's just all over the place, but um, I think has been truly notable in, in just teaching us all what it means to be right and not to like being right, because uh, it means that America has slipped deeper into a public part, uh, private partnership and tyranny is maybe what I would describe this. Um, feel free to steal that, Rachel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I um, love it. But so let's, let's kick off this discussion um, with this. Pretty recently, we, we um, got the news that there's going to be a, a massive corporate law lawsuit to try to enforce the bid that Elon Musk put in on Twitter. And a lot of folks um, kind of, we're really excited about this possibility of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. I mean, maybe he still will be forced in, into taking over Twitter. Um, but it, it seemed like it was kind of the last gasp of the idea that we might be able to solve the idea or the problem of tech censorship through free market means, right? We might be able to get our billionaire champion, um, Elon Musk, and and put him up against <laughs> Jeff Bezos. And we were going to watch them all rock him, sock him, fight for our basic sort of cultural understanding of free speech. I mean, um, now that, that Elon Musk is trying to pull out of that deal, I mean, ha have you seen people kind of coming over to your side and, and saying, okay, well, if e even Elon Musk um, could not sort of, uh, could not save us in this, you know, does this really have to be a, a public policy question? Are you is anybody convinced or, or is everybody just still as dug in as they were before? Yeah, our, our oligarch failed us. I'm so distressed by the fact that the right leaning, the the right's billion billion dollar champion failed. Who could have seen this coming? Um, yeah, you know, I do think the Elon Musk takeover, I think, sparked or at least forced a conversation that wasn't really happening when you're looking at tech policy, as it were, because when you talk about the policy aspects of the tech debate, when you talk about Google, you talk about Amazon, Facebook, these companies are all lumped together because they are just massive, right? So the, the cultural impact 
has been sort of a separate discussion from the fact of how big they are, their market impact, and that's driven a lot of the discussion on Capitol Hill. But Twitter's always been a little bit separate in that regard, because I think when most people think about social media censorship, Twitter goes to the top of the stack because they are so censorious when you, you know, compared, I think they're so blatant as compared to the other platforms, even though I think all of them engage in it. But it forced a sort of discussion about the role that Twitter plays in our speech norms and and how that's developed over the last 10 years. And it forced people to reckon with the fact that no, actually Twitter, even though it's small, because it's it's escaped notice, I think, by a lot of sort of the competition policy types on Capitol Hill, because it is actually quite small compared to the other companies. But its impact is in just an outsized impact in shaping national narrative. So basically saying what we talk about on the news, what we talk about, you know, in newspapers, leading newspapers, and increasingly what happens in companies themselves starts and ends on Twitter, right? You, you've seen people be fired over what they, they say on Twitter. You've seen people, um, you know, companies change their entire way of doing business because of what happens on Twitter. Um, New York Times and NPR are arguably driven uh, by what happens on Twitter. So I think people are forced to at least uh, recognize the fact that this has changed how we communicate, how we interact, um, and ha- really has offline consequences for how we behave. Now, has that provoked some sort of policy response? Yes and no. I mean, I think everybody recognizes that, you know, because of the platform's power, there needs to be some rules of the road here. Um, but for the right, you know, we haven't really seen our old uh, remedies work, right? Elon Musk may or may not buy Twitter. He may not actually enforce some sort of uh, cultural reckoning with Twitter and change the way it does business. The other alternative is to make alternative platforms, right? And we haven't really even seen that take off. You know, the the sort of paramount example of this is Parler and what happened to Parler, but even Truth Social, you know, we aren't really seeing a runaway alternative to Twitter, uh, you know, blow the, the doors off the marketplace there either. So Twitter presents, I think, an interesting... Um, problem in the sense that we don't really have a policy solution for a platform that is arguably um, has had the most impact in changing the contours of how we talk to each other and how we interact. Yeah, this this really is, um, it, it forces, I think, not just policymakers, but ordinary Americans. We're, we're, we're confronting what is essentially, I think, a question about what we want the shape of our regime to look like. Um, and, and increasingly, because I know from my own personal experience and you know, being pretty much a down the line Reaganite, let's say five years ago, um, and then being convinced by you and others on, on some of these questions. At first, I, I really wanted to wall off a couple of these questions from the rest of the way that I thought about politics, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it was like, okay, so this is a unique problem, right? But increasingly, that sort of public-private communication where the government you know, sort of signals um, to to private companies. Um, I think the, the best example of this is the vaccine mandate, right, where people were pretty certain that that mandate would not stand in the courts, but it stood long enough to send out the bat signal to all of the companies who then enforced a vaccine mandate on millions of Americans, even though, and then the vaccine mandate was struck down, um, but it didn't really matter because it had already been enforced. And we see that kind of... Um, you know, coordination without formal coordination happening more and more, um, that that problem seems to like repeat itself 
in every single one, especially of our cultural debates now, right, where we see private companies acting either with the government or in concert with each other in a weird sort of collusion that looks very different from, you know, the kind of traditional antitrust context, right? It looks very different than the robber barons coordinating, you know, vertical vertical and horizontal integration, buying up everything, although there is some of that, and we can talk about Google in a moment. Um, but it seems like that kind of collusion or, or coordination is happening almost on the like sort of cultural level. Um, and it's it's starting to impact everything. We can't wall it off from our politics. We are going to have to reshape our politics and our political response to what is essentially, and maybe you can correct me, I, I don't think that there has been this kind of tyranny or this particular kind of shape of, of censorship, for example, to pick just one of many problems. I, it's not comparable in that way to the Soviet Union. It's, you know, to some extent, it comes out of China and, and their kind of um, social credit system. But there it's ruthlessly enforced by the government. And here, we are, for the first time, as far as I can tell, confronting a question of kind of private tyranny. Yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's right. And I think that's why it's sort of befuddled so many of us, you know, on the right who come from, again, that sort of classical Reaganite, classical Friedman-esque right, type of economics, which actually does put, you know, the market and the government in two completely separate spheres. But here you see this sort of collusion um, that our laws just aren't prepared to deal with. And it's interesting because this is what got me interested in this question in the first place was back in 2013 when I was working for Senator Paul and the Snowden leaks came out and, you know, there's so much information to parse in what was, what, you know, Edward Snowden revealed, but was mo most interesting to me was one aspect of the PRISM program. And the PRISM program, if you remember, was sort of their, that mass surveillance network uh, that the NSA was enforcing on Americans warrantless, you know, spying essentially. But the way that they were doing it is by using the back doors of social media companies and of sort of the burgeoning tech economy. So they were, you know, the NSA was granted access to Google, you know, Google granted them access to email, Facebook gave them pictures and videos and voice recordings, you know, of people, even Dropbox, right, was giving the government access to all the data that Americans were giving them. And to me, that was, again, the, the, the moment you're describing right now, which is, this is an awkward fusion here because again, you know, you've always seen the government try to compel this information from companies, but they have to go through a process. There's, you know, a due process course of, of doing this kind of work. And then there's just the flinging open of the back door, which is what was going on here. And to me that, that turned on so many light bulbs for what could be right. And, and no one was really talking about that aspect. You know, obviously there was a million other things to talk about, but that piqued my interest because that, you know, if, if in the libertarian world, you know, when you were looking at these companies that run on your data, there was always a little bit of like head scratching about what could happen. But when you saw that fusion of corporate power and government power, that should have, I think, sent, you know, everybody scrambling for basically seeing what we live in now, which is the, this corpse state, right? The, the surveillance capitalism that developed out of that now being turned um, towards surveillance capitalism slash cultural enforcement. And we don't have an answer to that. You know, I think in, in what I've tried to write and think about, you know, I always come back to the fact that, again, these companies as it, it also exist, not just with technology and surveillance that we've never seen, but also at a scale that we've never seen. So, you know, when you're talking about speech norms being changed, you have these companies that just exert massive control over the discourse. We have never seen this before. 
And so I think in many ways, we're trying to catch up. We're trying to deal with the fact that, you know, Google just tracks you at, at every point in your life, essentially, even if you're not using search or email, you know, if you have any access to any app that you need to engage in the modern world, essentially, Google is the back end of that app. What do we do with a company that ha- that can reshape who you are in the digital in the digital realm? And that's a lawless space. There's no policy around how these companies are restrained. And when a government can access that, when you have that uh, ideological fusion, which I think you're seeing right now between the far left and these companies, that's a weapon. Um, And I think you're starting to see these companies weaponize a lot of this information, a lot of this data, and take, as you point out, sort of the tip of the cap from from the government um, to say, oh, they they don't want you to talk about this? Well, you can't talk about this on our platform. And we saw this blatantly with COVID. I mean, that was probably the most blatant example was, you know, the signaling from the White House uh, briefing room to say, well, of course, we're telling Facebook, you know, what they can and cannot allow about what people say about COVID. If you can't see the the sort of spinning red siren uh, around sort of how we talk and, and interact and the what impact these companies are having on it, I, I don't know what else to tell you at this point, because we're in it. We're living in the dystopia. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 one level even more complicated, I think, um, because of the existence of the administrative state and the sort of permanent positions of government, right? Because that is really where those signals are coming from. Um, it's not just coming from the president or from you know senators and hearings, although although it is. Um, the the politics of this are only going one way, and there's a shared understanding. So, for example, when Donald Trump was in office, it's not like Facebook was really taking their cues from Donald Trump, right? They were they were still taking their cues from the larger administrative state, which is very very opposed to you know Trump's governing philosophy, um, and that that makes us one level more even more disturbing, right? Because theoretically, if they were listening to the government, um, to the elected government, at least the American people and sort of the the position of the majority of Americans would influence how these companies behave. And what we're seeing is is kind of the opposite, right? We're seeing that there's a minority position, but that has captured this this sort of swath of the the ruling class. And I would never use that phrase five years ago, but I think it's the only one that that fits that cuts across those public and private lines so that the CEO of Google and, you know, the head of any government agency have vastly more in common with each other than they used to. Um, and, and frankly, that the CEO of Google and that agency head and, you know, the, the financier um, of Hollywood movies, they all have some so much more in common with how they see the world than was the case even 20 years ago, and certainly the case, uh, you know, 50 or 100 or 150 years ago. So, I mean, do you, h- how do you even combat this kind of coordination that is is based much less on the direct action, like sort of um, either direct communication or direct like apl- uh, application of power, and much more on essentially you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. We all see the world the same way. And these people are really crazy. And we know who should not be, you know, spreading, quote unquote, disinformation. And we're thinking about the same people when we talk to each other, as opposed to like a broader definition that encompasses more of society. Yeah. So, you know, one of the elements I think you're touching on is, you know, the sort of ideological enforcement and adherence at the top of that ruling class. Like when you have the sort of, you know, people at the top, the 
controlling the levers of power in society, again, they all think the same way. What I think makes the tech companies unique, right? When you, if you look at something like, okay, you know, the CEO of Target, you know, is let's just say, right. um, You know, imposes a woke agenda, meaning when you go to Target, you know, you have whatever, you know, woke psychology pushed down your throat, you know, and all the advertisements, that's one thing. But for the CEO of Google to think that way and to want to enforce that through its company, it's just tremendously different because of what these companies, how much data these companies have amassed on you, what they know about you and what they then can do with it. That's what makes, I think, the tech companies a little bit different than quote unquote woke capital, you know, writ large, um, because these companies really do have your entire life sort of in their servers. <laughs> and I pointed this out recently in a column I wrote for the New York Post when Google was like, oh, by the way, we're going to delete the data of, and this was in response to the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court that struck down Roe v. Wade. They're gonna, they said, okay, well, if you go to an abortion clinic or like any of these other five areas that we've deemed sensitive locations, very personal locations, like weight loss clinics, fertility clinics, things like this, we'll delete your location data. And that caught my eye because it gets to this idea that these companies are tracking you wherever you go. And this is just a tiny amount of the data they collect on you as your location. This was for the first time Google saying, we are going to selectively uh, go in and, and to your profile and remove the data that we think says something about you. Well, the converse of that is also true, right? You, we can go into your profile and find data that we think says something about you. And if we are weaponized in a specific way, or if we, if we believe that we are ideologically empowered you know, to, to act in a certain way, then the gloves are off with what they can you know, share with the government, what they can share about you, uh, and with a, an ideological bent, right? Uh, oh, you attended this political rally. Right. Yeah. You may not have gone to an abortion clinic, but you went to this pro-life rally. Um, you know, we're going to delete the data of one and we're going to amplify the data of the other. Um, you know, we don't like the fact that you go to this specific Catholic church on Sundays or whatever, you know, whatever the left is deeming problematic that day. If Google aligns itself with that ideology, they are in a position to, you know, sort of rewrite who you are. Um, as it, it, on a social script, how the rest of the world views you. And as we've seen on so many occasions, it's not just, um, you know, the government investigating you. It's not just uh, action being taken against you. It's that these companies can rip apart your entire life. They can, you know, it's a ripple effect, right? If, if a Twitter mob goes after you, suddenly companies don't want to associate you with you. Suddenly your bank doesn't want to work with you. Your employer wants you terminated. Like it's a they can change the entire way your life um, is seen and the way in which you interact with society. And that I think is a tremendous power that we haven't even you know, started to discuss. And when I write about these things, again, to me, it comes back to scale. Um, there's a couple things that have to happen. I, I don't think companies should be able to sort of exist in this data universe where one company like Google controls all of this data about you without any parameters whatsoever. We have no you know, federal data privacy law we should at least debate whether we want one, but in some respect, we should have some rules of the road for data and what these companies know about you. But, uh, but more than that, we should have, I think, some rules about how these companies govern themselves if they're, if they're going to exist at the scale in which they do. Because even if you got rid of Facebook, right, even if Facebook fell, at some point, another speech alternative is going to arise that has the same power that Facebook has. <laughs> and again, do we want to go back to this idea that, well, if Elon Musk owns it, it's fine, uh, you know, and any company Jeff Bezos owns is evil. I don't know that that's the solution we want. 
that, that I mean that that brings up the prospect of blackmail as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which that that's what I was thinking about while you were talking. I was like, so they own everything about you. I mean, what's to stop them from going to even let's say legislators who hold policy positions that they don't like and saying, well, you know, this might just leak your your uh, your search history might leak your what you're you're sort of um, clicking on online and then the the second thing that was going these are truly scary things because that was the first thing that went through my mind is my god this is like a treasure trove for blackmail right and then the the second thing the immediately second thing um, that went through my mind was something that Rod Dreher said on this show um, uh, maybe six months ago and he said I do think we're rapidly approaching the time when essentially gatherings, even in person, um, that are contrary in some way to the narrative, the dominant narrative, um, we're going to have to leave our phones at home. Yeah. Do you think that that's <laughs> like, do you think that's coming? I mean, if you, yeah, I do. Um, and I don't, I hate saying this, right? I hate the fact that like, this is America in 2022 and we're having this conversation, but uh, you know, it is so apparent in the last five years that how badly um, our politics, you know, and especially people on the left who are triggered by any kind of, you know, discussion they don't like, want to control the flow of information. They want to control what information you have access to. If you remember, I think it was in the New York Times, you know, when the, when, when Clubhouse was sort of peaking, the ad, the com, you know, the sort of conversation app that sort of took off during the pandemic when everybody was at home. The New York Times, I think it was the New York Times, complained about the quote unfettered conversations that might be happening on this app because the app in their mind wasn't doing enough to crack down on what people were saying. You know, those awful independent thinkers, they might say something, you know, that that uh, misinformation that that might spread because people were just talking out loud. And I so, you know, that is out there, right? And the logical conclusion of that, you know, of that type of thinking is that yes, you know, the speaker on your phone, the speaker on your smart devices that are already listening to you anyway, right? Gets repurposed for some political agenda. And if it's not from the government, it's from, you know, the sort of woke uh, or, you know, some ideologically deranged uh, staff (laughs) at some of these companies and they repurpose it for their own ends. Um, Because again, I don't think people really think this through when you buy an Alexa and you put it in your home, it is listening to you constantly. Now the companies are like, oh, we don't use this ever. We delete it. But there's been example after example after example that they don't. They use it for their own internal market research or at targeted advertising. But my point is this data exists and there's no telling there's no parameters around what these companies can and can't do with it. And as we've already seen on numerous occasions, when you get that signaling from the White House, you get that signaling from, you know, any other political leader, all bets are off as as to what these companies are then going to do. What do you tell the person that thinks we're crazy? Right. Um, what, what do you tell the, the person who's listening to this and uh, says, you guys, I, I know that there are some problems with big tech. I know that, for example, they censored the New York Post story about Hunter Biden, like that previous that subsequently has been um, confirmed in, in uh, by by other major news outlets. And um, we've seen some of the data itself. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's hard to deny that there's some level of problem. But what do you say to the person who just listened to what we just said and said, what are you guys, what are you talking about? Like blackmail, 
your phone listening to you? You know, are, are you guys uh, going tinfoil hat on us? I mean, uh, <laughs> what, what do you tell somebody who doesn't see these as connected, these incidents as connected? Because fundamentally, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about pointing to a, a pattern in incidents and saying, this is representative of something broader and deeper in the way that power and decision making and and sort of in the in the public sphere is is being changed and and not for the better um how how do you convince the spe- the skeptic that that actually yes uh, your phone blackmailing you is something that we should be worried about in, in the immediate future yeah yeah it's it's i think part of the problem with how fast this technology is developed because you know you and I are, I think, of maybe the last generation, the elder millennials, right, who bridge the divide between the, the world we live in now, which is just digitally connected, completely sort of tech is everywhere, right? And how we grew up, which is was a very analog way of growing up, right? We remember, you know, VHS, and we remember uh, growing up before iPhones were ubiquitous and, and all these things. And I think people that's given us a lot of benefit, but it's also happened so quickly that I, I think people aren't aware of the full scope of, of how much we've turned over to these companies. And I would urge people just to, to first, the first thing I think to do is to sit back and reflect on how digitally connected your life is because if people just don't think about it, it's rote, right? That you pick up your phone, you call an Uber, um, you know, you, you tell Siri to tell you the weather, um, you know, you log into your Gmail and you are connected to all of Google, the Google suite, your, uh, your, you know, I, Apple watch connects to your phone, which connects your computer. Just think about how all these things interact. That is all driven by your behavior, right? And where you are at any given time, 10 of your devices know this. And so when you start to think about it in those terms and you just imagine how much of your data is already out there, the minute you click buy now on Amazon, right? Like your whole profile is created on what you're doing, what you're buying, which is goes into a profile designed to target you with ads, obviously. But to do that, they're making assumptions about what your life is like based on an algorithm. So, you know, you've heard the famous example that Facebook or the, the or Google knows a woman is pregnant before she's told anyone based on her search history, right? All of these things go to create a tapestry about you. You've turned over all this information. Now, also sit back and think about the fact that, you know, 10 years ago, would you be seeing PayPal and Venmo cut off users because they don't like what they do offline? Would you see a world in which, you know, GoFundMe wouldn't fundraise for, you know, certain causes they don't like or, you know, people going to trial, right? Not found guilty, but just people going to trial for, for you know, speaking or doing or saying things uh, that these companies don't like. Would you consider an instance in which a bank would cut you off, would cut a sitting president of the United States off uh, from his banking services because, you know, he's fallen out of favor because he's, you know, the worst president that ever existed. When you combine these two things, that's what gives me pause and to say, yes, I actually can see a world in which this happens because it's that fusion between everything that exists about you off, you know, online versus how companies want to respond to you offline. When you combine those two things, it's a, it's a brave new world. And I don't think that people have really woken up to this because it's been sort of like that bird on the back of the, rhino- uh, of the rhinoceros, right? The, the huge animal isn't moving. 
And so the bird feels very comfortable and then suddenly it moves and, and you know, the whole, the whole bird's whole world is rocked. That's where I think we are with technology. And this, I think, was really apparent during COVID, by the way. Um, if you remember the technology that these companies put out immediately, um, Google was able to, within 48 hours, you know, or or like a couple of weeks of the pandemic, you know, being called, Google said, oh, but here, by the way, government, here's all of our location data. It's aggregated, so you can't see individual movements, but here's all of where people have been. So you can make assumptions, are, are people following the lockdowns or are you seeing too much movement here at the grocery store in this specific town? Um, COVID made it very apparent. Um, I think what these companies can turn over or make public should they choose to. And so when you think about those two things together, it, it it's not a far leap to say, yes, you know, your illicit gathering to talk about, you know, I don't know, uh, pro-life policy or whatever it is that day that's upsetting people is the next thing on the list. And in fact, you you wrote about an example of that, right? Or you tweeted about it. I can't remember. But Eventbrite, which is literally just a way to RSVP for in-person events took down a event that um, was, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was something COVID related, right? It was about the vaccines yeah. or about whatever, something was, that went against the um, the narrative. Uh, they, they actually got rid of an in-person event. Now, of course, you can still meet up in person, but then factor in some of the things that you just said, right? About your phone tracking you and, and it starts to get... Um, it starts to get truly dystopian very, very quickly. Yeah, it was a, it was an event by the American Conservative Magazine to talk about the event was about crony capitalism, right? It was about how the vaccines were developed um, and big pharma and who's making money from the vaccines. But the speakers were um, Robert McCullough and um, or no Peter McCullough, my bad, and um, someone else deemed problematic by the establishment for talking about vaccines. Um, I'm blanking on his name, um, but famously got Joe Rogan. He, he was on a Joe Rogan podcast that got banned too. But the third speaker was Senator Ron Johnson. It was, it was Malone, right? Malone, Robert Malone. Malone. Correct. Yeah. Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, Senator Ron Johnson talking about the development of the vaccines, who made money essentially from these vaccines. And Eventbrite was like, yeah, you can't. RSVP for this event on our site. <laughs> it's just like. Think, think about that for a moment sitting senator an yeah, event right. with a sitting senator elected by american voters is not acceptable to put together an event or advertise for an event online i know the claremont institute has also had that problem um that they, they have had their ads for their events taken down but event eventbrite is one step more right because it's that's what the service does it, it sends out email invites to people that you want. Um, well, and this this is what I think is the crux of the issue for a lot of people on the right, because they're like, oh, you know, these companies, they'll never go too far because they'll stop making money. Like the profit motive will always push these companies to not do this, right? But at the end of the day, to the point that you just made, this is what Eventbrite does. This is how it, it makes money, right? Is it, it brings users to its site to RSP for events. And you're now seeing these companies almost act against their own financial interest to stand up in an ideological way. And that, I think, is what makes this problem so different than anything we've seen before, is that you've seen these companies turn against their own users to push an ideological agenda. And that is something that we on the right never thought could happen, right? We always thought the profit motive would trump 
ideology. We always thought that the profit motive would enforce a certain amount of neutrality on the public square. But for whatever reason, these companies, they're not beholden to it. And you can make arguments for why I make an argument that it's because they're so large, right? That, and this doesn't apply to all companies, probably not Eventbrite. But when you look at companies like Google and Facebook uh, and Amazon and Apple, they're so massive that they can act against their own users because they know their users have nowhere else to go. And that's part of the definition of being a monopoly, right? But I think it goes back to how these companies now control the marketplace ideologically uh, in a way that's unique and different. Um, and, you know, there's many, many examples of this happening. By the way, going back to Ron Johnson, I think he may be the most censored senator <laughs> uh, in the United States Senate today. He's held hearings, right? Hearings that he ran uh, in his capacity uh, I believe is ranking member of the of the Senate's uh, Homeland Security and Oversight Committee. Senate testimony, sworn Senate testimony, was stripped from YouTube for violating its vaccine policies. Right, and and when I pointed this out on Twitter, everyone was like, "Oh, whatever. You can go to the committee's website. You can still access this, this information." But that's not the point to me. Right, the point to me is that YouTube, far and away, is where people access this information more than anywhere else. Like the amount of people that actually go to a, a Senate committee website to, to watch a, a hearing is like minuscule compared to the people that access it on YouTube. And YouTube was like, "Oh, what's going on in your government? What's going on in the self-government of the United States? We've deemed it too dangerous for you to see." I don't care that you elected these people. We are in charge of that information, and we are going to strip it from the site. That's happened to Ron Johnson, like I think at least two or three times at this point. Yeah, and, and it's it's happened to Trump as well because his uh, just airing the footage of his speeches, uh, right. particularly around election stuff, right? Um, there just airing been, pure footage. Has yeah, just just, off, yeah. just putting <laughs> up the video of somebody who probably in a matter of months will be running for president, and that, that'll really um, that that'll really put a finer point on this, right? If you have a a, a candidate for office that is being so censored by these tech companies that he's, it's impossible to get his message out as a candidate. I mean, that it, it, if it was happening in any other context, we would immediately point to that and say like, oh, this is, this is actually a threat to democracy as we, so we like to talk about well, so many that times. Was the issue, other yeah, that, that was the issue with the Hunter Biden story, right? Is that it was censoring information critical of the son of a candidate running for president. Right. You, there was elements, many aspects to that story. Right. Of, you know, the element of the free press, you know, their story not going out, all these things. But the one political sort of hinge to democracy was the fact that, you know, you can make an argument that that story not circulating protected Joe Biden on the campaign trail. It, it by suppressing information critical of a member of his family, you were denying voters access to information about a candidate for office. And the same is true, by the way of how political candidates use these platforms because digital ads are now, you know, on social media are almost critical campaign infrastructure, you know, for so many candidates at this point. Um, this was especially true of the Trump campaign. Um, they really leveraged social media in a way I don't think that any other candidate had been as effective at doing. And it, it's now sort of a roadmap for how a lot of candidates run their campaigns. And you're seeing Facebook, YouTube, all these platforms censor political campaign ads, you know, as violating their, their speech laws, um, not just for candidates, but also for causes. You've seen American Principles Project ran a couple of ads in different races uh, on the transgender issue in sports, 
saying, you know, don't let transgender athletes in into women's sports, their ads were completely banned from the platform. And so, yeah, I do think it has a hinge to democracy. I do think you are linking it to the democratic process when you're saying speech and political speech gets cut off these platforms. That, of course, has a ripple effect, you know, on sort of the pureness of our elections when these platforms are so involved. I wanted to ask about, so you say a part of the reason, of course, that they can ignore the pushback of their customers, right, is because of their size, at least for some of these companies. The the other potential reason, of course, is that their customer base is increasingly outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, increasingly, the, their real clients are either, well, inside the United States or often government entities or um, outside of the United States, particularly in, in Chinese markets, right? And, and they have to protect access to Chinese markets uh, at all costs. And that is a financial interest for them. Um I think everybody at this point has noticed that there is a huge hypocritical disconnect between the, the cultural positions that these companies so strongly espouse at home um, and their willingness to do not just business, but to, to open up all their intellectual property to kind of, um, you know, uh, sell the family jewels off uh, to get access to Chinese markets. At this point, the Chinese are actually trying to do something that we're, we, we should have been trying to do for a long time, which is decouple themselves a little bit. I mean, I, I know at least in, for example, in, in Hollywood, they're, they're starting to severely limit the number of films that can have access um, to the Chinese market. They may start to do that with, with other things. Um, doing business in China is becoming more and more difficult. I mean, do you think that this is going to make it possible for the U.S. to really incentivize both negative and positive? here I'm talking about incentivize our companies um, to work at home and to work within the confines of uh, to work within the confines, whether legal or cultural of, of, of sort of the American way, right. Which among them would be respecting something like freedom of speech. Um, do you think that, that this is a possibility? Because one of, one of the big problems when we talk about heavily regulating this industry, for example, is that if we are to go into a cold war with China, we actually do need we do need the products and the innovation of a large part of the tech space. It is a, a big asset for the United States, but only if it's an, actually an asset for the United States. Right. I mean, how, how, how do we how do we think about sort of the carrot and the stick at really essentially recalling some of these great American businesses who are now international businesses more than they are American? Yeah, this is a big fear of mine. And I think something we we really haven't grappled with is how much these companies have, you know, hedged their bets with China because it's where they, you know, want to make money. And and I think from a national security perspective, I find this kind of terrifying because, you know, one sort of area of this that I've written some about is the race for artificial intelligence, right? Whoever wins the race for AI sort of rules the world. And and we are in a race with China to dominate them, (laughs) to get there first. But the problem is, right, that the companies that we would rely on to do all of this work, to do all of this innovating are companies like Google, are companies, you know, like Apple to some extent. And those companies are very much embedded in China and very happy to do whatever it is they have to do to make their bed in Beijing. Because again, the, the billions of eyeballs that exist there are amount to billions of dollars for these companies. And you look at a company like Apple, 
who it just came out, I gosh, maybe like six months to a year ago, the MOU they signed five years ago with China saying, okay, if China's going to allow them to do business, uh, these are all the things that Apple's going to agree to. And one of them was to help the Chinese government develop superior technology, right? Which is at this point, aiding, tangibly and materially aiding our, our biggest geopolitical adversary. You look at a company like Google, who again, has some of the best minds in the business working on artificial intelligence. And yet, where do they have an AI office? They have an AI office in Beijing. They are doing AI research in partnership with the Chinese. And you know, here at home, they're also involved in a woke struggle session, right? With a researcher called Timnit Gebru, who they had to fire uh, over any number of reasons, sort of the reasons are depending on who you talk to, uh, disputed, but it was about her being a black woman in tech. And, you know, all the, there's still a massive fallout over these sort of race and culture issues that are stymieing Google's research on AI. So that's the tip of the spear for our AI research here in America is Google, which one has made its bed in China and two is like, can't get over its woke issues. Like this is how we're going to win. You know, this is of concern. And so I do think, you know, how we bring these companies back to say, no, look, at some point, you know, you have to draw a line. And, and you know, for all your talk about free speech here in America, we know that, that tech products made in America or by American companies have been used by the Chinese government to suppress the Uyghurs, you know, to suppress their own people. And so the, the element of hypocrisy is even too large to fathom, I think. But the biggest concern for me is that we have American tech aiding and abetting, again, China, which I believe to be our biggest geopolitical adversary. And that's something you know that we don't have control over at this point. I would love if Republicans take back the House or the Senate, one of their oversight or investigatory hearings should be who, who among our American tech companies have shown their source code to China, right? How much does China actually know about our tech infrastructure based on what these companies have given them? Because that seems like something that we should know. <laughs> a, a very baseline thing that we should know and soon. Um, far be it for me to introduce a note of, of optimism into all of this, but um, what what about the revolt of the competent, right? Because the, the, the incident you just pointed to about the, the sort of woke struggle sessions within these AI, you know, at what point do these companies pass over or fire or generally disadvantage you know, competent, smart people who are on the leading edge of whatever tech development they're doing. You know, a lot of them, white and Asian males, for example, um, who are being uh, told that they they are the problem, right? And and right. <laughs> um, not getting their next promotion because that the company is promoting on the basis of of essentially diversity quotas. I mean, at, at what point does the the competent the sort of engineer in the middle of this? who by no means, you know, don't get me wrong, by no means do I think that that person necessarily agrees with you and you and I about like culture, politics, but at some point it's just, I would like to do the work. And I think that does come through just to, to loop it back to Elon Musk for a minute. That does come through in the way that, you know, Elon Musk talks about these things, right? He's frustrated about it because it's going to take way longer to reach Mars if he can't promote on merit. Right. Right. Um, but at some point that does, that does put some kind of hard wall on this, right? Um, there should be some critical mass of people who just want to do this kind of work. Um, and it seems like there would be new companies that would spring up to take them. 
right? That and and maybe this this market function won't work either, and it won't work the way that we predicted in the same way that um, the the sort of consumer check on these companies has not worked the way that we predicted. But I I got to think at some point there's a critical mass of the competent. No, I think that's probably right, and I think. You know, I do wonder if the pendulum on these type of issues is starting to swing a little bit. If you remember, um, you know, Netflix, which I guess is a tech company in and of itself, but, um, you know, had a couple of activist employees that I think launched a protest against like Dave Chappelle or something, you know, that was being streamed on Netflix. And Netflix was like, yeah, they had a protest and then Netflix fired them, right? (laughs) They were like, we don't need to deal with this, bye. Um, and, you know, I think if you look in a handful of these companies, so much of the Sturm and Drang, if you will, is driven by a handful of employees. And, you know, they have successfully cowed so much of management for a while, for the last several years. And I'm wondering if, to the point that you're making, it's now becoming a, a competition, a drag on competition. Like we are not able to get our deliverables done. We are not able to make our contracts because, you know, these six employees are, you know, protesting whatever the issue du jour is. Um, so we're not going to put up with this anymore. That is the only thing I can think that solves this sort of HR crisis that a lot of these companies are happening. But it, it or that's happening a lot of these companies, but it relies on having tough leadership. And that, I think, is something we can't control, right? That has to come from the top of these companies. And Google, as far as I can tell, and a lot of these tech companies haven't, a lot of the leading tech companies anyway, you haven't seen that happen. Yeah, one of, one of the things I'm learning, I think, that I would not have, again, predicted from pure ideological grounds is sort of how quickly people become used to uh, a, a sub sort of optimal or, or competent system. Mm-hmm. Um not just with regard to deliverables and line, you know, maybe, maybe the new company culture just becomes kind of like the government, right. Where nothing is on time or under budget. Um, and it seems like the the consequences, like the cause and the consequence are attenuated enough that it, it, it there's always some other reason for it or there's some, some other reason given. Right. And I, I was thinking about the problem of um, the way that I, I've put it to other guests on this, this podcast has been the problem of planes falling out of the sky. Right. Eventually, if you hire pilots on the basis of quotas and not on merit, you will have more accidents. Right. That being said, there's only like, you know, one or two maximum airline accidents a year. A small fraction of those are ca- caused by pilot error, right? I mean, major airlines, I know there are smaller planes go down more frequently, but, you know, there, there's only a couple of them a year. Um, you can easily imagine a company... Uh, over the course of years or even decades, not really making the connection, um, especially when everything around them and the narrative and everything is is sort of uh, pushing them not to make that connection, right? That make that connection forbidden to say, um, you can easily imagine that this could drag on for quite some time um, before that that inevitable consequence of, of hiring not on merit starts to catch up. Um, and, and similarly, people just have gotten used to, and I think COVID has been really instrumental in this people have just gotten used to a worse life in america yeah. that, that has really um shocked me actually honestly com- coming from the sort of background that i do with my parents coming from the, the former you know eastern Bloc. it's like i did not think that the american middle class for example would tolerate the kind of supply chain shortages the the like lack of customer service the fact that 
flights now or every flight I take is delayed or canceled practically. Like you can't count on the airline industry to get you from point A to point B in a way. I mean, it was unpleasant in 2019, but nothing, nothing like this, right? Um, the fact that I have to wait until October to get a new oven. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, it's shocking. I, I thought there would be like an immediate revolt against this stuff. And, and I, maybe, maybe I just haven't seen it because I, where I live in New York or something, but I haven't seen that kind of huge anger. Inflation, yes, because that's like directly, can I pay for groceries? But the fact that we now go to the grocery store and we're just like, oh, they're out of that. Even I've yeah. caught myself being like, oh, they're out, they're out of steak today. I'm like, what, when did I get used to this? I think your observation about COVID enforcing that is, is a really good one because it, I think had it happened all at once, like had there just been a slice in, you know, in, in the, a tear in the universe and suddenly we woke up and we're dealing with the supply chain crisis, it would be a lot more dramatic. And I think um, people's outrage would be a lot uh, more in the open. But I think because it was just that slow drip with COVID and because it was like, oh, well, there's a, you know, a pandemic and we just have to get used to dealing with this. And that just became our new way of living. <laughs> and so now we just put up with it. And it is it, like, it is shocking. And I don't know, it's allowed companies to just get away with things. If you notice, like people excuse are still using the COVID excuse, like companies that have just nothing to do with COVID, right? Like they're like, oh, well, this, th you're not getting this because COVID um, or, you know, our customer service is terrible because COVID or, you know, you're not going to get a response for two weeks because COVID. And it's like, you're just using COVID at this point. <laughs> like there, there actually isn't for your own incompetence. Like there actually isn't a COVID reason for this to be happening. So, you know, there, there's no, there's been no equivalent yet, I think of, of like a French yellow jacket response. If you remember when, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when Macron, like I think raised the gas prices and you saw the working class revolt, there's been no similar response. I think we've just been putting up with it. It's very British actually. We're very stoic about these things now. I never would have expected that from Americans. Yeah, I, I really wouldn't have expected that from Americans just culturally. I mean, Americans are the they invented the customer's always right, you know, a vastly different sort of consumer culture in Europe than than there has been in America. But yeah, that, that has really shocked and surprised me that Americans have put up with these kinds of things. And to to end on, on a, a traditionally depressing note, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, to your point about that you made earlier about us being kind of the last people um, generation to remember the bridging into the digital divide and remembering before everybody had a computer in their pocket 24 seven. Um, you know, that makes me wonder if we're also the last generation that will remember American abundance at, at the mm -hmm. level. And if, if we'll be told uh, by perhaps by tech companies that that is disinformation to say that there was once I remember it, you can't tell me it didn't happen. That was, I once expected that everything would be in stock in the grocery store. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that that was that was the case in the United States of America. <laughs> hey, we because we were we grew up in the '90s, which don't I still maintain is like the best decade. I loved the '90s. I loved growing up in the '90s. But to your point, yes, like these companies have the power to rewrite history. And you know, people may say, "Oh, well, there's always been people trying to rewrite history. How is this any different?" Well, it's different because of the scale at which these companies exist. It's different because Google you know, is on the back end of everything you do because Facebook is where over half of people get their news, uh, where Twitter driving the national conversation. We've never seen companies with power this unprecedented. So if they wanted to rewrite history, 
if they wanted to stop you from speaking in the public square, they effectively have the tools to do it. That's the problem that we're facing right now. And we don't yet have a policy response. You know, you can look at antitrust, you can look at breaking up these companies, you can look at Section 230 and trying to sort of make them more responsible for how they police speech online. But until we come to some kind of national agreement that the power these companies have should not reside in two or three companies, you know, at a scale that can literally distort and twist and manipulate the public consciousness, we aren't going to solve this problem. And it's not as simple as simply, well, I'm not going to use Google because you're, you're using it wherever you are. It's not as simple as saying, I'm not going to engage in the digital marketplace because how do you else do you live in the world? Um, we've entered a new, a new world, essentially. We've entered a digital age in which we have no rules. And that's been great for innovation. And we want to keep certain elements of that. But you have to police it going forward because that's what the social contract is all about, right? We don't sit here and let the companies, the tech companies reshape our entire universe in their image. We set the rules and we've entered that democratic lawmaking phase of this debate and we have to get it right because our lives are being fundamentally transformed at a scale and at a speed and at a scope that I don't think really anyone is quite yet aware of. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is our digital age is going to lead to one of two things. It's going to lead to a new democratic age or it's going to lead to tyranny. And that's really the the, the choice we're facing today. Rachel Bovard, the, thank you. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I so said the means are there for both, right? The means are there for, you know, more and enhanced democracy or the means are there for tyranny. And I think that's why this moment is so important. Well, on that on that note, Rachel um, Bovard, thank you so much for for joining High Noon. Um, you can find Rachel's work uh, over at CPI. You can also find her on Twitter. Is it at Rachel Bovard? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it is at Rachel Bovard, and and you can find her work again um, as as in her tech po- uh, columnist position over at the Federalist, as well as writing for American Mind, New York Post, and many other illustrious outlets. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Thanks, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on all of those tech companies we were just talking about, Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.